So, guys, just a quick heads up. Um, for the first couple of minutes in this episode, the audio is a little bit echoey, um, but that sorts itself out after about two minutes. So um, the whole podcast isn't of that quality. So after um, I finish introducing Eric and he has a few words, um, the audio goes back to um, the normal quality and it's nice and smooth. So um, that's pretty much it from me. So let's get into this episode. So guys, welcome back to the Brains for Gains podcast. We've got yet another very exciting guest on today, um, the man Eric Helms, who's obviously a very um, American bodybuilder, but is currently stated in Auckland, New Zealand. Am I right with that one? I like that I'm very American, but yes, yes I, I, live I live in Auckland. Auckland. That's, that's where, right, that's where, that's where I've uh, been for the last five years. years. Yeah, that's with your PhD, right? That's, that's right, yeah. Cool. So can we call you Dr. Eric Helms yet or not? You can, but I won't let you. So we'll just go with Eric for now. Yeah, cool, no worries. So basically, um, Eric Helms is someone, obviously, who, for practitioners like myself and other people that I surround myself around, is sort of a gem in terms of the information that they're putting out. And obviously, um, is the founder or one of the founders of the very bespoke and well-known Team 3DMJ, which is obviously stands for 3D Muscle Journey, which is a um, bodybuilding prep service. It's been about for many years. Um, Eric's also an author of the Muscle and Strength Pyramid, which for any sort of practitioners that are just starting listening to this or a couple of my friends that are in the gym that I know are just sort of starting in that science-based um, training, I would definitely recommend reading them. This uh, got a wealth of um, knowledge and information coming from them to resources themselves. And obviously Eric's got um, a ton of uh, coaching experience and obviously teaching experience as well. So Eric, we'll hand over to you. Um, just talk about yourself for a little bit. Like I said, I'm not sure how vain you're feeling, but have you sort of felt like I can miss anything there, or you want to add anything else, my man? Just feel free. No, you covered it all, man. That that, that, that was that was great, man. It's an honor to be out. Thanks for having me. No worries, dude. So, the first sort of question I have is, um, I've got quite a lot of friends recently who have sort of made that choice to turn vegan, and it's something that's sort of always interested me in terms of vegan being vegan um, and bodybuilding, so putting on masks, because obviously we know protein intake is very important for, for muscle growth, and um, some, some of the um, protein sources that you're going to be getting when vegan may not be complete protein sources, but um, if you could just sort of talk about the possible implications of being a bodybuilder um, alongside with being vegan, and um, some of the tips and tricks sort of with supplements and, and food choices that you could sort of adopt to make sure that you are maximizing uh, results while sort of adopting that lifestyle. Certainly, yeah. I think, um, I think first, uh, I think, uh, just to put it out there, that sometimes a lot of people will uh, bash vegans or vegetarians and, and not realize that maybe the reason they're doing it is not because they're they're misinformed on the science, but more for just an ethical reason. And um, so, so my perspective is, hey, more power to you if you want to do that. Uh, if you have reasons for it, you know, kudos to you for standing by your ethics. So, yeah, is there a way to effectively bodybuild while still eating in that manner? Certainly. Um, as you alluded to, most of the problems stem around um, getting adequate amount of protein or high-quality protein to make yeah. sure that a muscle gain can occur effectively. Um, one of the easiest ways to overcome that is just to ensure that you kind of saturate the system. Yeah. So, you know, 
per unit of protein, typically you're going to see not as great of an amino acid profile from um, from plant sources of protein versus animal sources. So that means you could just get in a lot of protein, mm-hmm. um, you know, somewhere around the around the, around the range of two grams per kg or higher, and you're probably covered in most situations. Yeah. However, to do that, uh, most of the time that means you're going to have a very high carb intake. Uh, to get there. So then you run into problems while dieting. There are ways around this. Um, most of them come down to uh, taking in protein powder on a, on a semi-regular basis. Uh, and then you start to run into problems that the probably the cheapest and the most common form of soy protein, there's enough evidence where I'd be uncomfortable having someone have a large portion of their uh, protein intake come from soy because there's potential uh, estrogenizing effects in, yeah. in men that yeah. could be a negative. Um, and fortunately, though, there, there are now these days a lot of ways around that. Uh, pea protein, rice protein, uh, wheat-based protein, all those types of things. Pea protein actually performs pretty well in the literature. If you look at it when it's compared head-to-head to whey, mm-hmm. it has a, uh, a pretty high branched-chain amino acid profile. Yeah. Um, and it can be combined with other forms to provide a, a quote-unquote complete protein source. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's something you'll hear a lot of people say when talking about uh, vegetarian or vegan diets that you have to wor- worry about complementary proteins because a lot of the times you'll be eating quote-unquote incomplete proteins and uh, you have to think about how to get a full amino acid profile so that you're not missing out on any, any of the essential amino acids. Yeah. Um, however, that's often that perspective I think is often a little lacking because they're talking about on a per-meal basis. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that, that proteins affects or... Uh, benefits only hangs around for one meal. So if if you're eating complementary pro- proteins throughout the day, uh, that's probably fine. You don't necessarily need to make sure you get rice and beans yeah. at every meal, as mm-hmm. an example. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's probably nothing wrong with with having um, meals that don't include complementary protein sources, so long as your protein intake is a high, and b includes complementary sources throughout the day. So that's probably the the easiest thing to, to kind of tick your box is to get some vegan protein powders. Probably don't consume too much soy. I'd probably keep it to like maybe one a day and you probably should be fine. Yeah. Um, look into pea, look into um, blends out there. They have yeah. um, There's some good blends out there by Legion Athletics that just came out called Thrive, which I was really impressed by that profile. Yeah. Um, and uh, additionally, there's some other things you might be deficient in. So for example, even if you are able to get your protein intake high, uh, you're you're going to have low levels of creatine because that's primarily only in yeah. animal sources. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can actually supplement with creatine, and that cool. is a I, I'm pretty sure actually I'm almost positive that any any creatine source you buy is going to be vegetarian or vegan friendly. Yeah, uh, that's pre- I think it's created in the lab, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that that's something that if you look at studies on creatine, it's actually even more helpful in people who are vegan or vegetarians. Yeah. Um, because basically they start from a more deficient state. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are benefits outside of just muscular strength and power that come yeah. from supplementing with creatine. Um, there's, there's actually cognitive benefits. Yeah, uh, creatine is, is often used. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Creatine is often used as a treatment in some uh, neurological disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I would say probably you also want to supplement with beta alanine. It doesn't need to be as high as if you're taking it purely for performance Mm -hmm. uh, because the reason you take beta-alanine is to increase your levels of of carnosine in the muscle, uh, which can affect performance. 
Cool. Um, now, while beta alanine is normally taken in like the range of, you know, four grams ish per day to enhance performance, it's typically performance that's lasting 60 seconds or longer. So it doesn't have a ton of application to, uh, you know, bodybuilding or powerlifting per se. But if you were also doing cardio, if you were into CrossFit, or if you were doing other, you know, team sports, that would be something you'd want to get up to that level. Um, but even a small amount would be beneficial to a vegan or vegetarian just to get carnosine levels kind of in normal ranges. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would probably recommend some good, uh, like vegetarian or vegan focused multivitamins to cover some of the other micronutrient deficiencies. And if you can do all of that, um, you're pretty much, uh, you know, you're pretty much sorted. I think it just becomes a little more difficult when you have to diet because yeah, then your, your diet has yeah, to become, of course. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you end up having to shift your diet more towards powders. Mm-hmm. And um, one, one thing I do want to say to anyone who's a vegan or vegetarian listening to this is that just like we, it's probably healthier to take a flexible versus a rigid mindset to the way you diet. Um, while I understand, if you, especially if you're doing this for ethical, ethical concerns, you want to have hard, hard line principles. Um, but you can make a huge difference in your impact on the world. Uh, and do things in a more flexible manner with with eating that way. I, I, I myself consider myself a flexitarian. Mm-hmm. I try to minimize the amount of meat and animal products I eat, but I still consume them just because it's so difficult not to yeah. in the modern world. Exactly. Um, so I, I it, like if someone was to view my diet, they'd probably call me like a lacto ovo pesco, you know, vegetarian <laughs> or just a pes- yeah. or just a pescatarian. You know, I, I rarely eat, um, you know, meats that could come from you know, factory farming situations because I'm not comfortable putting money into that. Yeah. And that's just me personally. But if I'm on a plane or if I get invited to a conference or someone cooks me a meal, um, you know, that's, that's going to be like one meal out of six month period that doesn't yeah, perfectly align with, with my values. And it's most of the time it's out of convenience or, um, you know, another value of mine is I want to show respect to the person who yeah, course, you know yeah. gave me a meal free or something like <laughs> yeah. that. So, so, so I think uh, that's just useful advice that I'd put out there, that if you can still make a huge impact and make a big change in your life, if you think of more about it, like, you know, trying to like reduce your, your carbon footprint, like if you're, somewhere, you're yeah, someone yeah. trying to have more, you know, sustainable energy resources, you can reduce your, your ethical footprint or, or if you want by, by, uh, by, by changing your diet when possible and when it makes sense, but not being so hard-lined about it that um, you cause more stress than it's worth it. Yeah, cool. So you pretty much ticked all the boxes there with sort of my segueing questions. Um, so we'll sort of move on to um, the recent sort of BCA literature that's come out with obviously um, muscle protein synthesis. Now I train at um, a gym in London that's sort of still very old school. You know, the, the weights are still from the 70s in there. All the machines are still from the 70s. And um, the mentality in that gym is obviously, again, still from that sort of 70s, 80s era where, you know, you've got to be sipping on your BCAAs when you're doing your cardio. And when you're doing your weight sessions, otherwise, you know, you're going to lose all your gains and, you, and you're never going to progress. Now, obviously, um, you help publish a, um, an informational sort of uh, package that comes out each month called Mass, which I obviously recommend, again, anyone sort of subscribing to. It's just a monthly prescription with sort of quick um, sort of roundups of the recent literature that's come out. So, um, obviously, recently you had um, that, that study that come out and also I think it was Seanfield that had one. And basically, I see him post on Facebook about it. So if you could just go into sort of that um, 
was pretty much a lie about the uh, BCAAs and muscle protein synthesis. It's more about sort of total uh, daily protein. So if you could just go into into that side of things and sort of shut the people up that are listening, telling me that I need to be drinking my my mango flavored BCAAs twenty four seven, otherwise no gains will happen. <laughs> yeah, th- thank you for the plug for mass. Yeah, but um, yeah, I've, the, I've got a discount code. Yeah. Well. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so so BCAAs are branched chain amino acids. Mm-hmm. Um, have been an interest. Have been you know I I would say worthy of the research done on them. But once research is done and it kind of you know shows that there's probably not a lot of benefit in something, we need to kind of move on. Yeah. Um, BCAAs are branched chain amino acids. They're unique in that they're fully metabolized in the muscle and they could be used for energy. Um, also, leucine, one of the branched chain amino acids, uh, basically serves as the the trigger for muscle protein synthesis, if you will. It starts the cascade uh, that generates the process by which it turns on the protein building machinery. Um, of course, you don't can't just turn it on. You also have to supply the actual building blocks to build muscle. Um, so those are the main reasons that people are interested in BCAAs. Um, and I, I will we'll put this out there that when compared to nothing. BCAs often do perform pretty decently, um, but the real question is, uh, why would you need to take BCAs uh, if, if you could just take simple carbohydrates or even whey protein, depending on your goals? Um, as it stands right now, the only study I've seen in which BCA actually outperformed something else was doing aerobic fasted cardio, and it outperformed carbohydrate, and that's yeah. presumably just to the speed of uh, by which you could you could access each one, um, you know, because if you're actually doing aerobic cardio, ideally you want to be working off glycogen. So if you're in a glycogen depleted state and you're consuming carbohydrate, you're really going to be working off blood glucose compared to BCA. So it might be a speed speed idea speed type thing. Yeah. Um, there's also an interesting study out there where they compared, um, I believe, carbohydrate to BCA for weight training fasted, and they kind of had a different effect. They found that while the uh, perceived exertion was lower in the RPE, uh, sorry, in, in the BCA condition, um, the actual performance was better in when taking uh, the carbohydrate. Yeah. So, you know, th- there seems to be some effect on the perception of, of, of difficulty performance uh, that may not actually be as, as useful as the actual change in performance. Um, and, you know, I think this is less of an issue because people, it's not 2009 anymore. People aren't doing like the constant uh, sipping on BCA all, all day approach that we used to back when I remember doing contest prep and yeah. uh, kind of like having this IV of, of branched chain amino acids uh, basically. Uh, but there are some studies suggesting that, that BCA is not as effective at raising muscle protein synthesis as simply whey protein. Uh, and that kind of goes back to that whole uh, issue with just triggering it versus actually triggering muscle protein synthesis and providing the building blocks. Yeah. Um, so it's probably better, especially in, in large amounts, to be consuming um, whole proteins for the most part. Mm-hmm. And almost anything that any situation where someone can come up with a rationale for why BCA might be used, whether that's semi-fasted, because I don't really think you're actually fasted if you're taking amino acids. Or some other situation, I, I, I fail to see why a scoop of whey protein couldn't do the same job. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I think that more or less covers it. I think if some people are, are just really uneducated as to what BCAAs, BCAAs are, that's fine. Um, you just look into it a little bit more, you'll find out that they're basically just isolated parts of whole proteins, uh, and they're present in, a, in, in abundance in, in high-quality protein sources. So you definitely get them in your diet anyway. 
Um, and uh, to, da to date, I would say now that we have meta-analyses, studies under both cal calorie-restricted and non-calorie-restricted situations, uh, you know, fasted for cardio and resistance training, et cetera, I think um, we've pretty much exhausted all situations that I can see uh, where BCA could prove beneficial. Um, so I, I was a holdout for a long time on, on the situation where BCA could be helpful. Yeah. Uh, I remember back in 2012, I think with Alan Aragon, I said, you know, man, like what if someone is, you know, fasted and they have to do, you know, hits and then uh, hit shortly after resistance training, wouldn't it be good just to, you know, get some BCA in or what if they're calorie restricted? Um, and, you know, I think those are, those are reasonable hypotheses, but at this stage, I think those have been exhausted as well. So I think in, in any time someone's in one of those situations, a scoop of whey or a well-tolerated quick digesting protein uh, as an alternative, for example, like a vegan, I think is a perfectly acceptable option. And I personally can't think of any reason to buy BCAAs uh, at unless this stage. Taste, unless you just like the taste of it and you don't want to drink water, <laughs> maybe. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, so that's something that I can sort of vouch for myself personally. I used to always sort of drink BCAs into work at whether I was sort of gaining or, or cutting. And I've recently switched over to um, a, a sort of a isolated carb blend with a Pepto Pro. And I've sort of no noticeably felt very, very stronger, a lot more fueled in my sessions. And obviously it's a bit more expensive, but I feel like that that's, like you said, it's um definitely a, a more sort of... Um, visible uh, approach to intra workout nutrition rather than just BCAs by themselves. Certainly. Yeah, cool. So, just um, something that I've come across recently. Um, like I said, I was at a conference, um, you know, Steve Hall from Revive Stronger. Yeah. I, I know Steve well. Shout yeah. out to Steve Hall. Yeah, shout out to Steve Hall. <laughs> That'll be listening, but we'll, we'll tag him on Insta. He might have a listen. But um, There we go. Basically, he had a, a conference with Mike Isretol, and they sort of spoke about um, an hypothesis that he's come up with, which is um, basically low-fat, high-carb massing. And because um, obviously the traditional uh, approach to bulking, whether you're quote-unquote dirty bulking, where you're eating everything inside, whatever whatever that word dirty means, obviously we don't believe in that. But um, people tend to just ramp their fat up quite quickly. And um, he was basically saying how having higher fat quantities when you are in a surplus can potentially lead to more fat gain than having lower fat, higher carb because of maybe insulin sensitivity post workout. And um, I just sort of wanted to get your um, your opinion on that. And obviously, you said in uh, off off air chats that um, it will pretty uh, be um, a quick sort of roundup. But I'd still like to just get your opinion on whether that sort of hypotheses and the potential outcomes of that could be true. Sure, and I, th I think it's it's a worthy hypothesis, but mm -hmm. I, I I do that's, think that's at this stage yeah. at best it is a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Um, sure. You know, to my knowledge, it's not like we have any experimental research comparing, you know, moderate fat to low fat uh, on, on equated calories and equated, more importantly, equated surplus yeah. um, among individuals of similar training ages following similar training programs. Mm -hmm. um, as it stands at the moment, the things we do have solid evidence are on are, uh, or more or less solid evidence, is, is rate of weight gain is pretty important. Um, and there's a study by Garth. Um, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong because I know she is Scandinavian, <laughs> Garth. But uh, nonetheless, um, in Ina Garta, if I had to guess how to pronounce it right, uh, she did some cool research where she looked at uh, athletes uh, bolting on uh, basically a four-day upper-lower split 
uh, and consuming calories either directed by a nutritionist or a dietitian, I should say, um, versus just trying to eat in a surplus on their own. And the ones directed were eating 600 calories more per day than the other group. And while they gained similar amounts of lean body mass and strength, uh, the group that was eating 600 calories more uh, put on about five times as much body fat. Yeah. Um, and although one other difference was that the group that put on uh, five times more body fat and thus more body weight also dropped their sprint or increased their sprint times so they got slower because mm. they weighed more, <laughs> um, which I always find a slightly funny finding. Yeah. So the, the, the take home there is if you look at the percentages of rate of weight gain is that somewhere probably between say or a rough estimate of about 1% of body weight per month. Uh, is is a recent target rate of weight. It's a decent target rate of weight gain yeah. uh, for people, especially if you're drug free, mm-hmm. um, who most of my listeners are. So I kind of yeah. put that out there yeah. uh, because faster than that, and and you may may not necessarily it may not be worth it. I, I'm sure that if you go a little faster, you could gain a very small amount more muscle. Uh, but at a certain stage of experience uh, in the weight room, uh, muscle gain does come slow, almost no matter what. Um, you know, even if like in this case, you, you add four days of training and you drastically increase your volume yeah. and you increase your food, uh, not, not even that is necessarily uh, enough to prevent just excess fat gain. Mm-hmm. Now the hypothesis they're talking about, I think is interesting. Um, and it, a lot of it comes down to, uh, the way fuel is used and stored when you take in one dominant source versus another. Yeah. So for example, in humans, we have very limited ability to do what's called de novo lipogenesis, which is actually turning carbohydrate into body fat. And you have to be at pretty damn high levels of carbohydrate before it gets converted and changed. And actually, the carbohydrate itself becomes stored as body fat. So what happens when you're on a high-carbohydrate diet is that a greater percentage of your dietary fat is probably going to get stored as body fat. Um, and if you go on a high-fat diet, Yes, you burn more fat, but you're also consuming more fat, and more fat is stored as body fat. Mm. So theoretically, you could see a situation where if you kept dietary fat low enough and you pumped your carbs high enough, and we know that you know, lipogenesis is pretty limited, that you just wouldn't have a lot of substrate to actually store as fat. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, thinking about what, what could actually be happening because energy has to go somewhere, you'd you'd expect an increase in dietary induced thermogenesis. You'd probably expect uh, you know larger glycogen storage, um, and you know it, it might be a useful way to avoid uh, you know fat gain. I could see that as a as a high hypothesis. Yeah, uh, you could also take the same tact, arguably more. Um, more, 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 even more inhibiting a fat gain would it be to pump up your protein really high. And there actually is uh, research on that. Looking at, by by Antonio, he's looked at intakes in 3.5 to 4.4 grams per kg range, mm-hmm. and typically, despite an increase in calories, uh, you're seeing a, a, a you know you're you're not seeing the co-committant fat gain you'd expect. Yeah. Now whether this is just reporting errors because they're so damn full from eating so much protein mm-hmm. and being so sa- satiated. Uh, it's hard to say, uh, but nonetheless, even if they are eating less calories in these studies, the groups are gaining similar amounts of lean body mass, which is very interesting. So e- it tells you either one of two possible outcomes. Eating a very high-protein diet, even with high calories, will result in less body fat gain, or eating a high-protein diet is going to reduce your surplus, but not so much that it actually 
reduces the amount of lean body mass gains. So yeah. uh, going on a high, high protein bulk, uh, either way, whichever mechanism you buy or whether it's a combination of the two, uh, seems to limit fat gains if that is something you're concerned about while bulking. Yeah. Could a high carbohydrate, low fat approach do the same? Um, potentially, uh, but I would have much more confidence in the, uh, the higher protein approach. Yeah, of course. Uh, that said, uh, the high protein approach was not better, which is important to point out. And you, you, I could then see a counter argument to what I just said that, well, hey, if we can top out glycogen storage, um, and since there is only so much of a benefit you can get from protein while bulking, you know, maybe we don't go up to four, four grams per kg, we just keep it at three, and then we keep fat minimal, and then we, you know, pump up the carbs as rest as possible. So it becomes kind of this high protein, high carb yeah. hybrid with, with, yeah, with yeah. low fat. Cool. And I think that's actually a very common approach in, uh, among bodybuilders, kind of traditionally. If you look at that, it's pretty yeah, common since exactly. the 80s. That's, yeah, that's what I was just about to say is um, a lot of bodybuilders who sort of train with that old school mentality, they sort of demonize fat. And obviously they love protein. I'm sure you've seen that advert when um, I think it's Kelly Muscle and all the other guys are on the beach and they're just saying protein. So they obviously love protein, but um, that's right. Obviously scared of fat, man. So that that could possibly be why a lot of the body, obviously drugs aside, a lot of the bodybuilders sort of stay fairly leaner. You know, you don't really get people like um, uh, that takes sort of that Lee Priest approach where he just used to put on like a hundred pounds in his off season, eating eating KFC and stuff. And um, I, I can sort of see why that possibly could have that outcome of staying leaner. Um, when you are massing, which obviously I'm going to experiment with in my next my next sort of um, gaining phases, and I'm really excited to see sort of whether fat gain will come slower, which I'm hoping because obviously no one likes fast fat gain. <laughs> uh, of course not. And I would say Lee Priest probably was also because he was eating everything in sight and yeah. it had a lot more to do with calories <laughs> yeah, exactly, necessarily yeah. is dietary fat. But yeah. um, you know, I would think that a, that a high protein, high carbohydrate. Uh, off season would result in more satiety. So even if it was just a function of calories, it would probably make it harder for you to get there. Exactly. Now, on the other hand, if you are someone who really struggles to get in enough calories to actually gain weight, um, going on a high protein, high carbohydrate bulk is probably not a good idea. Yeah, no, and you exactly. actually do want to bump your your fat up to actually get into a surplus. Yeah. Um, for sure. So yeah. Again, I would say this is all just um, theoretical. Yeah. Exactly. And. Um, there, there are obviously, you know, fat is an essential nutrient and yep. something you want in your diet. And if you were going to do this, I would also caution you to make sure you get in fish oil and a range of healthy fats mm -hmm. uh, from the fats you are consuming on a daily basis just to make sure you weren't deficient. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there are arguments against having a low-fat diet out there as well. Like uh, if you were to listen to Menno Henselman, yeah. he would probably counsel against this advice uh, because he would think you'd probably see a slight but maybe – clinically meaningful down-regulation in testosterone in the long term. Yeah. Um, and at this stage, I don't think anyone can say they know who is right. Mm -hmm. um, but just be aware that any time uh, you, you, you maximize one thing, you're probably taking away from something else, and that may have unintended consequences. So yeah. I would say uh, don't go too low in, in dietary fat, or yeah. there may be downsides too. Mm. Yeah, 100%. So um, – just a last little question that just popped into my head that I forgot about. Um, it's just about um, Yohimbine or Yohimbine. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but um, obviously I'm sure you're very familiar with it. But I just wanted to get mm -hmm. your opinion on it, and sort of because obviously there is some solid literature that um, talks about you know beta and alpha receptors and how sort of that 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 could potentially um, lead to better better fat oxidization. But 
Um, I just sort of wanted to get your opinion on um, the possible outcomes of um, supplementing with your Himbine. Yeah, great question. So Yohimbine has um, been popular ever since there was a study, I want to say in the mid-2000s, and I may have this year totally wrong, yeah, uh, but it was on soccer players. And I believe they were taking 10 milligrams per kg. Uh, that, that may be incorrect. It might be 20. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. But it was a relatively high dose of Yohimbine, purified. Um, so I believe it was Yohimbine HCL, so yeah, not Yohimbine bark. bark. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you're kind of, that's, that's playing, you're, you're gambling a little bit. You might get too high or too low of a dose there. Yeah. And I'll explain in a second why you wouldn't want to do that. Um, but none, nonetheless, this, this group of soccer players, without changing anything else, lost a substantial amount of fat, much more than you typically see from a dietary supplement. Now, to my knowledge, it hasn't been replicated. And this is basically the one study that's the, the win in the corner of Yohimbin. There, there are, are others, and there's mechanistic work. Uh, there may even be animal work as well that I'm not aware of. Yeah. Um, but probably the, the person who's written the most about Yohimbin is Lyle McDonald. So I think he definitely yeah. deserves a hat tip if you were to read his uh, stubborn fat loss protocols. Um, and he speculates as to how uh, Yohimbin or fasted cardio or low-carbohydrate diets can be very useful in the situation of having uh, stubborn body fat, uh, which yeah. is basically body fat that, you know, everyone thinks they have stubborn body fat because something has to go last when you're dieting down to striated glutes. <laughs> it's usually um, where, so you by the, where you don't want it to come off last. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and But when you truly are dealing with stubborn body fat, it looks different than that. It, it's it's like, wow, we're, we're really disproportionately storing lower body fat, for example. Um, and certainly a case could be made that this could help kind of that fat loss go along and your himbane could be used. However, I would definitely caution people who decide to do that because they need to know uh, how your himbine is also used in studies. Um, it can enhance stress and is sometimes used in studies to examine anxiety. It's actually used to induce anxiety sometimes. Uh, and there are also known side effects of water retention that they incur, occur in everybody or even to a huge degree. Um, but those are two side effects that I could see being some of the last possible things I would want to occur in, in a contest prep bodybuilder. Yeah, so whether you want to roll the dice um, for the potential benefit, I would probably say based on my clinical experience working people and having them try it on and off, that it is not a game changer that is worth that potential downside. Yeah. So I, I would say maybe something for like just a casual off-season cut, um, but not for contest prep. Um, and you know, definitely just be very aware of the dosing. And like, like I said, don't use that Yohimbe bark and be aware that it is banned in some countries. So ordering it could get it seized at, at customs yeah. just because it's legal to manufacture and illegal to buy or, or to, um, or to, um, I don't think it's illegal to use in the UK, but you have to buy it, um, from abroad. I'm pretty sure you can't buy it here. So any sort right. Of, yeah. Any, any sort same of situation in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, um, that's pretty much it in terms of the nutrition stuff. Um, I just wanted to go into some sort of DUP stuff now. So um, a lot of the stuff that uh, we've seen with, with DUP and obviously I've, I've seen um, yourself and um, Mike Zordos at conferences as well, um, it seems to sort of favour um, powerlifting strength athletes a little bit more. Um, and I just w sort of wanted you to go in a bit about how you would set up um, a DUP program for bodybuilding or does it have its place because obviously 
in in the sort of history of bodybuilding, I don't think no one sort of uses the same rep schemes every day. So I think sort of um, unintentionally people do sort of follow a, a DUP style where most bodybuilders obviously don't have a, a sort of periodized program. They just go in and, and hit chest one day and hit, hit whatever they're feeling the next day. But um, how would you sort of set that up in terms of rep ranges and how would you um, sort of include the, the different um, frequencies and intensities into that sort of programming um, model? Great question. Yes, yeah, so I, I think the main reason why DUP has come across as something that is specific to powerlifting is just because powerlifters popularize it. You know, yeah. Dr. Zerdos is himself a powerlifter. Yeah. And while he does work with some bodybuilders, um, it's been presented in that fashion and has been used in powerlifting research specifically. Mm -hmm. But like you said, all DUP means is that you are doing different reps on different days. The yeah. only requirement is that. So doesn't you don't have to even be doing squat, bench, or deadlift. You don't have to be training three, even three or more times a week. You can do it. Like if you train twice per week and you did 10s on one day and 12s on the other, that's technically DUP, yeah. you know. Um, and, uh, and interestingly enough, the our most recent issue of Mass that's, that's actually just out today, um, as this is being recorded, we uh, went over a meta-analysis that, that looked at hypertrophy outcomes comparing linear to uh, undulating programs. Yeah. Um, and these were matched volume on, on mostly untrained individuals, but nonetheless, there wasn't a difference in terms of hypertrophy outcomes. Yeah. Um, and the, the key point there is matched volume. We know that arguably uh, the amount of volume you do is going to be the biggest predictor for how much muscle mass you're going to gain, you know, compared to your own rate of gains, right? Yeah. Um, so it's if, if you were to match volume and compare different periodization programs, you're, you're kind of missing the point in my opinion. What you want to look at is a setup of training uh, that allows you to complete the most volume with the highest level of recovery. Yeah. That's essentially the, the purpose of, of a periodization model for a bodybuilder is the progressive uh, increase in volume over time as needed to keep growing uh, and do so in a fashion that's going to minimize fatigue and injury risk, right? Mm -hmm. um, for a power lifter, you do indeed need to worry about peaking for strength. You know, and you have to think about your competition schedule, yeah. uh, and and you're going to look a lot more linear. You know, that means that you're going to have basically uh, a linear tenant of your overall plan, where your intensity is going to rise as you get closer to competition. Your volume will go down to accommodate that uh, dump fatigue taper, and then you will ideally be a little bit stronger than you would have been had you not done that. Yeah. However. There is no peak in strength, at least there doesn't need to be for, for a bodybuilder. Uh, for a bodybuilder, it's more about, rather than periodization principles, what I, what I or Dr. Tordos would call programming principles. Yeah. So looking at basically with, within the microcycle, how do I manipulate my training in such a way so that I can maximize my outcomes? And you know, one, one model that I presented, uh, if you are familiar with the Shredded by Science Academy, where yeah, I teach the module on coaching, yeah. cool. Yeah, because you were at the Johnson, conference, you know. Tom. But the listeners, you know. Yeah. So, um, uh, the model I use in that, which is, is one example of how you could set it up for yeah. bodybuilders, is um, basically having a volume day, a fatigue management day, and then a basically a encouraging progressive overload day. So kind of like a strength day. Yeah. Uh, and this is kind of based on the on on the research that Dr. Zeros did for his dissertation, where he found that going in the order of hypertrophy, power, strength, allowed greater volume and greater performance and therefore greater strength gains uh, than going in the order of hypertrophy, strength, power. Um, 
so that you weren't doing the strength day while you were still recovering from the hypertrophy day that had more volume and induced more muscle damage. Yeah. Uh, now, you don't necessarily need to train for power or purely for strength as a bodybuilder, but you could simply set this up as to have your highest volume uh, and then follow that up with a lower volume day. Yeah, um, so basically, just think of like hard, easy, hard, easy, especially yeah. if you're doing something like a full body approach. Mm -hmm. um, and this is also how I set up the training, different variations of this in uh, my muscle and strength pyramids. If you were to look at the sample templates, yeah. like the advanced bodybuilding split, for example, is six days upper lower alternating. Uh, but each one of those upper lower splits uh, has a different volume and different proximity to failure so that the two middle ones are a little easier before then you go into kind of the lower rep range work later in the week. Yeah. Um, and, the, the, you know, the highest rep range, the highest volumes earlier in the week. So there's a lot of different ways you can think about these principles. But more or less, probably the easiest way to think of it is if you have a day where you really get after it and blow yourself out of the water do a fair amount of volume and you know that's going to induce some damage and you're going to be typically sore and not ready to perform yet, then you need to set up um, your next training uh, session uh, as something that you can perform even in the haze of fatigue. And that will probably still have some value, could even provide some active recovery. And depending on how you do it, could even prime the next session. Yeah. So uh, it, it all comes down to just managing intra-microcycle uh, recovery to then there, therefore get the most volume with the most recovery. And that, that just comes down to savvy, intelligent programming, placing of, uh, you know, which, which exercises are going to do best. You know, like you probably wouldn't want to have an RDL, you know, in the session immediately proximal to doing actual deadlifts, for yeah. example. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, things like yeah, that. Cool. So uh, a lot of those programming variables are what you want to focus on. And yeah. I, I've always found it interesting, this is a bit of a side comment, that bodybuilders who tend to be so on point and track everything down to a science with their nutrition sometimes, like you said, are just going to decide to come in, train chest, and randomly select exercises. Yeah. I've always thought that was a an odd uh, departure from what you would expect with someone with that mindset. Exactly. And not that you need to be totally anal retentive with everything, but yeah. there probably should be at least some structure and plan and uh, attempt at progression over time uh, with your training. And so long as you are kind of meeting some basic tenets then you're probably doing okay. But you do want to meet those basic tenets. It's not as complicated as it might be for you know, a powerlifter or a multi-sport athlete who has to juggle many different uh, athletic outcomes. But yeah. certainly, you want to encourage progressive overload over time and you want to make sure that you are managing fatigue within a microcycle. Yeah, yeah, and that's something that I've sort of, um, well, I've been doing it for sort of the last past year, but I've um, just recently switched over from uh, push-pull legs to upper body, lower body. And it's uh, very similar to the uh, program template that you have in, and obviously in your book. And um, I sort of put a sort of I split up sort of quads and hamstrings for lower. So I have a I have sort of a more accessory base day for hamstrings, and on that day that's when I get after it with quads. And then I have um sort of like I don't really do normal deadlifts. Um, I, I sort of bring them in in sort of uh, every other sort of cycle. But um, at the minute I'm just doing a stiff leg variation, and um when I do my heavy days for that, that's when I go lighter with quads and then obviously I just do my accessories basically on opposite, opposite. And that's, that's been working really well for me in terms of my sort of, um, intro week recovery and stuff. I, I'm, a, I'm a lot less sore, but I'm doing more volume. So obviously that can only lead to, to more gains or more sort of muscle maintenance for me at this stage. Yeah. I think that's a great example of, uh, manipulating program variables to maximize, uh, and minimize the appropriate variables, respectively. So that, that's a great example of the principles I was just talking just talking about. Yeah, cool. 
So um, just last question to finish up on is, um, you sort of introduce it there, um, just multi, uh, multiple sport athletes or people who may, may do a martial art and um, or bodybuilding or may, maybe even people who are looking to uh, powerlift and bodybuild at the same time, sort of, obviously I know that's got a lot of a closer crossover than um, completely different sports, but for someone who's got a, a lot of um, sort of taxing fatigue attacks coming from their fatigue sorry for their other sports to say if someone's sort of doing grappling like obviously i know it mike israel um does a bjj and obviously he's a monster as well so how, how would sort of someone set up programming whether they have a client or for themselves um to sort of maximize gains and maximize recovery and how could they sort of use maybe dup or any sort of other programming models to um to sort of facilitate that certainly so yeah i'll first i'll start with I am a powerlifting and bodybuilding coach, so I have a lot of experience working with each one of those types of athletes and also those who want to compete in both, yeah. uh, but only very rarely do I get the opportunity to attempt, not necessarily succeed, at balancing one or the other with someone who also wants to play another sport. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's not easy, and there are some things that I would recommend against, like for example, uh, doing a contest prep for bodybuilding while still grappling. Yeah, I think course. that's probably a great way to get hurt, you yeah. know, um, <laughs> or trying to maintain a full bodybuilding or powerlifting training schedule while you're actually preparing for a fight. Yeah. So I think at, at, at a certain point, you do need to decide, at least in terms of uh, the time frame of, of competition, which sport is more important at yeah. any given time. So when you move into the preparation phase for a specific competition for either one, you then need to basically move into the maintenance phase for the other. Yeah, cool. So for example, what's the minimum amount of training you can do to maintain uh, your, your fighting ability uh, while you're going through contest prep and yeah. probably include as few actual sparring matches where you're getting punched Punch, or submitted yeah, yeah. or kicked yeah. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> as possible while your body fat's getting so low yeah, yeah. Um, and, and your recovery is so low and your food is low and your sleep's disturbed. Mm -hmm. Those don't seem like they'd mix well, right? Yeah. And, and same kind of thing is if you're, if you're actually going to uh, get in the ring and get punched, kicked, and submitted. You probably don't want to be doing, Have you know, one RM squats and deadlifts <laughs> on a regular basis, right? Sure. Um, that sounds like a great way to get hurt yeah. uh, from coming from the other end. So uh, you do have to prioritize it relating to the actual competition. But when you're kind of in a uh, building or developmental phase for both, I would say um, you can certainly blend the two. Um, and then, you, then again, it all comes down to using those programming strategies, periodization strategies to figure out a way to uh, accommodate each one. So for example, you can look at a, a really hard day of fight training as uh, having the same impact as a very high volume fatiguing hypertrophy session. Yeah. You're going to not only have delayed onset muscle soreness from, you know, doing a lot of movements, but you might have, you know, muscle soreness from actually having bruises uh, from, from getting hit and punched and, and stuff like that. So uh, making sure that your training is set up in such a way so that you go into those sessions fresh uh, and that uh, you go into your next lifting session, not beat up to the point where it could risk injury is, is key. So, you know, having basically easy, easy days sandwiching your days where you train for your sport mm -hmm. and then placing the harder days um, uh, more, more, with more distance from those sessions is probably the first thing I would do in, as far as programming strategies. Yeah. Um, and that's about as deep as I'll get into it with fighters because it's really not my specialty. But yeah, for cool. for powerlifters who also want to compete in bodybuilding, there is a lot more overlap, like you said. Um, any good powerlifting program includes hypertrophy work because there is such a close relationship uh, among powerlifters at least 
between muscle size and strength. Mm. Basically, you know, hypertrophy or, or muscle size is probably better said is only one component of strength in a multi-component model. Um, and once you have really, really good technical mastery and once you've had a lot of neurological adaptations and uh, even morphological adaptations like the ability to uh, have lateral force transmission within the fiber, uh, tendinous adaptations to get uh, good force transfer uh, while you're doing a stretch shortening cycle like a bench press or a squat, um, and you have a good mental game so that you can consistently um, get to the right level of arousal when you get under or over the bar. Once all those things are pretty stable, which they are an experienced powerlifter, one thing that does seem to dictate uh, differences between individuals uh, is their muscle size. So once you've made that that sports car super efficient, just getting a bigger you know engine is going to make a, a pretty big difference. Um, cool. So that means that you need to be having a, an efficient approach to, to gaining muscle as a powerlifter. And while I love the deadlift, it's probably not the best exercise to build your lats. It is the best exercise to build your deadlift. Mm. Um, but, you know, all, some of the muscles that contribute to that movement uh, may be better trained uh, through different movements. And anyone who's a super uber kind of uh, specialization geek who really kind of falls on one side of the spectrum of specificity I think an easy example of when that, that philosophy falls apart is, well, if your grip strength was limiting you and you could pull with straps 600 pounds, but you could only deadlift without straps 550, do you really think the best way to get the biggest deadlift the fastest is to do a whole bunch of deadlifts in the low 500s? Or would it be to take you know close to 600 pounds out of the rack and hold it for time yeah, exactly. uh, over time? And I can tell you from experience that one is certainly faster from point A to point B and will unlock that 600-pound deadlift without straps a lot faster. So there are times when you have to think about um, what is the, the most efficient route to dealing with a weakness. And you know, for, for certain people and certain builds and uh, certain resilience, resi resilientness to injury, um, it makes more sense to do more accessory work and less of the big three to some degree. You know, someone tends to get really folded over and has hip pain from squats maybe doing more single leg work, leg press, front squats, high bar squats, but non-competition squats is a better way to build the engine while you put in the appropriate dosage of low bar squats uh, to get the skill as a powerlifter you need. Uh, and obviously that would change throughout the year, but um, you can certainly see very effective approaches and athletes who've succeeded with less volume on the big three than others. Yeah. Um, so, to kind of fully circle back, how does that apply to someone who wants to compete as a bodybuilder and as a powerlifter? More or less, you build your hypertrophy program the same way you would as a bodybuilder, except you think about your primary uh, squat pattern movement and your primary hip hinge pattern movement and your primary push pattern movement should be the squat, the bench, and the deadlift. And yeah. then those should be periodized in such a manner that they become you know, heavier and you actually do some singles and doubles and triples uh, when you get close to competition versus kind of traditionally as a bodybuilder would staying in that like four to 20 rep range, you'd want to also train those. And, um, you know, when it does come time to taper for a meet, you start dropping out some of the accessory work movements and reducing overall training volume so that you can peak. And uh, that's a very simple way of just kind of thinking about it is you train like a bodybuilder who's trying to get strong on the big three. Yeah. And that's a pretty effective approach both directions. Yeah, exactly. And if you obviously take a, a real sort of world look at all the sort of um, best body, uh, sorry, powerlifters in the world, they are also very huge. You know, whether they're natural or not, they they all have a substantial amount of muscle mass. And obviously, the sort of bigger someone is, the more potential they have for strength. 
in the future as well. So like you said, um, just training like a powerlifter, um, or sorry, a bodybuilder who wants to be strong in the big three is a very, very good sort of quick roundup as to um, how, how you can get someone to train. And I think that's, um, I'm definitely going to use that with clients in the future, that little phrase that you've just had there. I like that one. Awesome. <laughs> cool. So um, that's it for today, guys. Obviously, um, a huge thanks to Eric for coming on. I know he's a very busy guy. And like I said, um, if you haven't checked out the Muscle and Strength Pyramids, make sure you do. And also, um, if you haven't checked out Mass as well, I hugely recommend both of them resources. But other than that, guys, hope you enjoyed it. And thanks for listening. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.